chapter, section by section, through the book of 1 Samuel. We've said that this is a book of ancient history. It, it tells the story of Samuel, the last judge of Israel. It, it tells the, the history of Saul, the first king of Israel, and then the history of David, the man after God's own heart. And if you haven't been with us, I'll remind you of where we are in the, the story thus far. This man, Saul, became king reluctantly as the people demanded a king like all the other nations. And then, as we saw in chapter 13, he was rejected by God. That he made an, an unlawful sacrifice, that he failed to wait on the Lord. And then the scene changed in chapter 14. That's what we looked at last week. We saw that the son of Saul, Jonathan, leading this brave attack on a high ridgetop where the, the Philistine garrison was encamped, this superior force, superior numbers, superior weaponry. And by God's grace and God's provision, he was able to, to lead the people to a salvation to deliverance from the hand of the, the Philistines as they, the enemy army was routed by God's people. You remember in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 14, it said that the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. So it's been positive in chapter 14 up until this point because it's looking at Jonathan this noble prince, the son of Saul. But now our attention is going to shift back to Saul himself, who, uh, as one commentary said, has the ability to you know, pluck defeat from victory, <laughs> that he has the, the ability to ruin any good occasion, and he does it again in this text. So I'll pick, pick up reading in verse 24, 1 Samuel Chapter 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dripping, but no one put out his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it, his hand, to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. And people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, 
Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me, or in Jonathan my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not a hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the king of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua, and the name of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahinamaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, 
he attached him to himself. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are two ways to rebel against God. One is what we could call irreligious rebellion against God. This could be somebody who rejects God and turns to atheism or to agnosticism or even to some sort of very outwardly immoral lifestyle that's forbidden in the pages of Scripture. It's this irreligious rebellion against God that you see in the younger son in Jesus's parable of the prodigal son, the one who takes the inheritance and goes away and spends it on prostitutes and riotous living. But then there is another type of rebellion against God, and this is what we could call religious rebellion against God. This is somebody who has a a ruptured relationship with God, who is actively rebelling against God, but then dresses up that disobedience and that rebellion in the garb of religious observance, that it seems pious and God-fearing on the outside, but it's void of true spirituality in the heart. You could think of the older son in the parable of the prodigal son who judged his younger brother once he returned to his father. So again, you have irreligious rebellion and you have religious rebellion against God. And as we look at this text today from 1 Samuel, we see King Saul in full-blown religious rebellion against God. After he was rejected by God, after he refused to repent after offering the unlawful sacrifice, he didn't turn to atheism and begin to, to publicly deny the existence to God of God. He didn't turn to some sort of very outward form of immorality or to the worship of Baal or Asherah or the other gods of the ancient Near East. That he takes his rebellion against God, and he dresses it up in religious observance. But of course, we can do the the same thing. As we think about irreligious and religious rebellion against God, that there, there is more chance that if somebody is in rebellion against God in this room, that it would come in the form of religious rebellion because we are those who are here today gathered in church. And so we want to consider the question of what would it look like to be in religious rebellion against God. And so we can ask ourselves three diagnostic questions. If we want to diagnose religious rebellion in our lives what would we look for? And so here's the, the first diagnostic question. Do you love extra-biblical laws while overlooking God's law? Do you love extra-biblical laws while overlooking God's law? And if so, it's a sign that you could be in the grips of religious rebellion against God. This is exactly what you see from Saul in our text. Look again at verse 23 in your Bible. It says that it was the Lord that worked salvation for them as they were pursuing the Philistine army. But then it changes to a pessimistic note in verse 24. It says that the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, 
because it was still hard work to pursue and to chase the Philistines as they retreated. And it says, So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And so he lays a a curse on the people. Cursed is anyone who eats food. And you can see there's a selfish air in it. He doesn't say that it's the enemies of God, but he says, until I am avenged on my enemies, no one in my army can eat anything. And so this is, there's perhaps a, a practical motivation for this fast, because Saul doesn't want his men to stop and to start eating the, the, the plunder of the Philistine army without pursuing the Philistines as far as they can. But then there's also perhaps a, a spiritual motivation that throughout Scripture, fasting is a religious exercise. It is a religious discipline. You see fasts in Judaism. You see it in Islam. You see fasting in many religions around the world as a way of expressing repentance or humility before God, of, of taking time to call out to the Lord with prayer and fasting. And so it's not wrong for Saul here to call for a, a public fast among the people. You see lots of times in the Old Testament where a king proclaims a fast. But the key point is that this is never commanded in the law of God. God never said that when you are engaged in a battle against your enemy, engage in spiritual fasting and I will help you gain victory. And just on a practical basis, it's a foolish idea. I mean, because if you're, if you're fighting this very physical activity to provide people of, of basic sustenance during that would actually weaken your army. And so it seems foolish. I mean, the only fast that was commanded by God in the Old Testament for the observance of God's people was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, that's recorded in Leviticus 16 verse 29. And so again, it wasn't inherently wrong, but we see the rash, foolish vow and curse of Saul on his own people. But then we also start to see in this text how extra biblical laws can be damaging for God's people. So we can clearly see how unbiblical laws can be damaging when when something is directly forbidden in Scripture and then we command it for God's people. That would be unbiblical. But then extra-biblical is something that isn't wrong in and of itself, but it's an addition to the Word of God, something that God never told us to do, an, an addition that we lay onto the backs of God's people. And you can see how this was bad for everyone. It was bad for Jonathan, because when they came into the, the forest pursuing the Philistines, it says that there was wild honey. Um, this is the land flowing with, with milk and, and honey. And they, they see the wild honey dripping, and Jonathan takes his staff and puts it into the honeycomb and puts it to his mouth. And it says that his eyes became bright. That, and you know how that is when, you're, when you are low on energy and you have a, a sip of Coke or something like that, and you feel your energy come back, your blood sugar goes back up, that it was the same thing for, for Jonathan, that his eyes became bright. But then the people around him say, you've done something wrong, because he didn't hear the, the curse of his father that was laid on the people. And so in a sense, the, the curse of his father fell on him. And so he begins to actually since badmouth his, his father to the troops, which we could debate whether that was wise or not. Is he, is he breaking the fifth commandment by speaking against his father publicly? Maybe, uh, maybe not. We could debate that. But, but we can see how this was bad for his son, Jonathan. But can we also see how this extra-biblical law was bad for the people as a whole? Because when evening came and the the ban on eating was lifted. It says that the people were so faint and so famished 
that they took the spoil of the Philistines, and they took the animals, and they slaughtered them on the ground, and then began to eat the meat with the blood. So maybe they're, they're eating very rare steaks. Maybe they're not taking time to, to cook it. Uh, but they may even be cooking it well. But you'll remember that in Old Testament law, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, and Leviticus 3, verse 17, and in many other places in the Old Testament, it told God's people to not eat the blood in the animals that they consumed. And that was part of God's ceremonial law, uh, pointing forward to the, the blood of Christ. That that's no longer binding for New Testament believers, but it was part of God's written ceremonial law in the Old Testament. And so you see what, what happened is that because of Saul's extra-biblical law for the people, it led them to break God's actual written law, that it led to actual sin among the people because of this burden that was laid on their backs. And this is how legalism works. Remember, they say that the gospel is always crucified between two thieves. On the one side, it's license that says, you can just do anything you want because you're saved by grace. And then the other thief is legalism that says, Here's the list of rules that you have to follow in order to, to work your way up to God. And that both license and legalism are destructive for people. Whenever we lay extra-biblical, or even worse, unbiblical commands and stipulations, it's soul-crushing for the people of God. And there's, there's a wonderful example of this in the Protestant Reformation— and you've heard, some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's one of my favorite church history stories, uh, is when the Protestant Reformation came to Zurich, uh, Switzerland, the, the reformer Zwingli uh, was troubled by the way that Lent was observed at that point, in the, and it had arisen during the medieval church, that it was a mandatory fast for the people of God. Uh, that if you didn't observe the, the fast of Lent from meat, that you were considered a, a bad Christian or that you weren't really following God. But through studying Scripture, they had realized that there, that was never commanded in Scripture. The Bible never mentions Lent. It never commands that particular fast. You might have an individual fast during that period, but to lay that on the backs of God's people can be spiritually damaging. And so they got together for a sausage dinner on the first day of Lent. And it, and it wasn't to be disrespectful to their Roman Catholic neighbors, but it was to assert the, the freedom and the liberty that they have in Christ, to say we're not bound to the commandments of men, that we are, we are free and bound to the commands of, of Christ, that no man-made law will bind the freedom that we have in Jesus. But then you can think of other ways that legalism can damage people. You can think of clerical celibacies. And I think that that has led to sin among clergy in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not wrong for somebody like the Apostle Paul to say, hey, I'm not going to marry so that I can serve the Lord. But when that becomes a law and a standard for the people of God. Or you can see this damage in extreme Protestant fundamentalism, where everything is about rules, exactly how you dress, or exactly how you educate your children, or exactly whether you can dance, or whether you can go to certain movies. Again, where, where you're taking biblical principles, but then you're applying extra-biblical hedges and laws on the backs of God's people, and it can be spiritually damaging. And so before we impose a standard on others or before we impose a standard on ourselves, it's always appropriate to ask ourselves, where is this taught in the Bible? Can I actually defend this command from Scripture itself? And if not, I shouldn't have my conscience bound to this standard. 
And it's exactly what Jesus talked about with the Pharisees in Matthew 15, where he says that, that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, making human extra-biblical rules the teaching of God. And that is the essence of religious rebellion against God. And so that's our first diagnostic question today. Do you love extra-biblical laws while overlooking God's law? But then here's our second diagnostic question. Do you judge others while overlooking your own sin? Do you judge others while overlooking your own sin? And if so, it's a sign that you could be in the grips of religious rebellion against God. And this is exactly what you see Saul doing in our text in verse 32. Look there in your Bible with me. It says that the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord, against Yahweh, by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here before me and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And so you see here this concern of Saul, that he gets the report that the people are, are sinning against God. And in a sense, rightly, he is incensed by this rebellion of the people. And so he brings a large stone to his camp, and he says, go tell the people to come and, and slaughter their animals here so that we can guarantee that they are draining the blood out of the animals and the proper way, according to Old Testament teaching, tell the people not to sin against the Lord. And so here he is, he, he's rebuking the people for their sin. And you even sense a little bit of the, the harsh language. It says that they, they reported to him, and he says, you have dealt treacherously. It almost sounds like he's accusing the, the messengers who are bringing the word of being the ones who are dealing treacherously. And so he's the one who is trying to take the, the speck out of his neighbor's eye while failing to acknowledge the log that is in his own eye. It's not wrong that he sees and acknowledges the sin of the people. Yes, they are breaking the ceremonial law of God. Yes, as a king, it's part of his responsibility to try to shepherd the people into moral and ceremonial obedience to the commandments of God. But yet there's no self-examination. He never once stops to say, well, maybe my rash vow incited the people. Maybe I contributed to the sins of the people, that he is completely hard in his heart. But of course, we can do the, the same thing as well. That others around us sin and we don't stop to examine our own heart. That our, our spouse gets mad at us, and we're focused perhaps on their sin rather than our own sin that may have led them to get mad at us. Or you can think of how this happens with parents and children. That a, a child rebels or falls into sin in some area— and then the parent comes down with a very heavy hand against the child without f 
ever thinking to acknowledge the way that their own patterns have contributed to the struggles of their children, the way that their own sin patterns are reflected in their children. And that's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so there's an acknowledgement there that fathers can provoke their children to sin, that the sin of the father can, can lead to sin in the children. And so it's appropriate when we're pointing out sin in others to acknowledge our own failing, our own sin, the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Again, I referenced this a moment ago, but in Matthew 7, verse 5, Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so when you see others in sin, it's always appropriate to stop for just a moment and to ask yourself, where have I sinned against God? Have I contributed to this sin in any way? And as you call others to repentance, where are you called to repent and to return to the Lord? So that is our our second diagnostic question. Do you judge others while overlooking your own sin? Now here is the third and the, the final diagnostic question. Do you love external forms of religion while overlooking your own relationship with God? Do you love external forms of religion while overlooking your own relationship with God? And if so, it's a sign that you may be in the grips of religious rebellion against God. And this is exactly what we see Saul doing in our text. Look at verse 35. It says, And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So in the midst of full-blown rebellion, full-blown lack of repentance, of this hard and penitent heart, that he's engaged in religious building projects, that he's, he's building altars to the Lord while his heart is far from the Lord. But then as the text continues, you see him engaged in religious exercise while in rebellion against God. So look at verse 36. It says that Saul wanted to continue pursuing the Philistines into the night, and the people are somewhat willing to continue. But then the the priest says, well, maybe we should consult with God first. And so they consult God using the the Urim and the Thurim. These were carried in a special pocket on the garments of the priest. And it was a God-authorized means of consulting God and discerning his will. And so you can see then Saul praying in verse 37. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But then this very chilling phrase, But he, God, did not answer him that day. That there is silence from heaven. That he's praying, he's engaged in religious exercises, but God is silent. He isn't speaking. And then again, following the same pattern, Saul assumes that it's everyone else rather than him. And he begins to think, well, somebody in, among the people have sinned against the Lord. And then he makes his second rash vow in the text, and he says, whoever it is will surely be put to death as the Lord lives. And so he makes a, a vow to the Lord and then he tells the priest again to call upon the Lord using the Urim and the Thummim. It's a hard word to say. Thummim. And at first, 
the, the lot falls on Jonathan and his son. It doesn't fall on the people. And then they do it again, and the lot falls on Jonathan, his son. And we'll talk about Jonathan's reaction more in a moment. But as a side note, one thing that I have struggled with in this text is, why did the lot fall on Jonathan instead of Saul? That it, throughout this whole chapter, Jonathan is the one who has been the most faithful, who has continued to be faithful to pursue the Lord. And it's clearly Saul who is the one sinning against God every point in the story. And so why did it fall on Jonathan? Well, in one sense, maybe the, the oath of Saul could still apply. The, the curse of Saul could apply as the king of Israel. But I don't think that that's the best explanation. And I was really helped by a commentary from Richard Phillips. If you, if you want a good commentary on 1 Samuel, it's a very pastoral commentary uh, by Richard Phillips, a, a pastor in South Carolina. And he says that without God's presence, the Urim and the Thummim simply were not able to function properly. Jonathan's selection by lot for judgment, when Jonathan was the one faithful man on that day, merely proves the vanity of the religious observance without the endorsement of God's presence. And that makes the most sense of the text to me, that in a sense, the, the Urim and the Thummim are, are broken, <laughs> as it were, that, that they're not, God isn't present. It, it's, it's just pure statistical probability at that point. They're not getting accurate results. And because it's, it's so obvious that Saul is the one who is, is guilty in this text. But again, hardening his heart over and over again. But you see what, what we're discussing, this external form of religion, that he's still using Old Testament system of the Urim and the Thummim to try to discern God's will, even though God is silent. He's still building altars, even though he's been rejected by God. He's still praying publicly in the presence of the people, even though he's been rejected by God, that he's engaged in the same religious disciplines, but without any kind of spiritual vitality and heart and presence behind any of it. It's, it's this empty husk of religious show. But of course, we can do the exact same thing, that we, we call on God, we, we go to church, we give money to the church, uh, we engage in religious exercises, but yet we are hard and impenitent in our hearts, that we're, we're failing to repent to our spouse, or we're failing to repent to our children, that we are, are digging our heels in in patterns of sin, that we are in active rebellion against God, but then we're dressing the, the skeleton of our rebellion against God up in religious garments, thinking that it can pass as true spiritual vitality, but it's dead. It's, it's empty. It's what Jesus said of the, of the Pharisees, that they were like whitewashed tombs that, that look good on the outside, but then inside are, are feel, filled with dead men's bones and with decay. And that's true for our spirituality, that, that if we come to church without true repentance and turning to Christ, that it does no spiritual good. Religious exercises without Christ are completely worthless. They do nothing. And that's where the call for each and every one of us, then, is to, to stop looking to the external shell of religiosity and to, to look to the true heart of our faith, which is repentance and turning to Christ, looking to Him for salvation. And as we look to Jesus, then, we see somebody who's a lot like Jonathan in our text, that since Jonathan here is pointing us to Jesus, because look at how he responds to Saul when 
his action is put on display when, when Saul says, tell me what you have done. In verse 34, Jonathan told him, I have tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And so he takes immediate responsibility uh, that, he, that he is willing to go to death to satisfy an unjust standard. But then how much greater our Lord Jesus Christ, who's, who's willing to, to go to death to satisfy a just standard of the holy, loving God, that we as sinners are under the sentence of death because of our sin, and that Jesus is willing to, to go all the way to the point of death so that we can be forgiven. And just as the people ransom Jonathan from Saul in this text, that we see that Jesus ransoms us, that, that he, he rescues us from the, the punishment of death that was rightly due to us because of our sin. And that's ultimately what we see symbolized and, and sealed for us here in this meal. That this meal is a picture of the, the ransom that we have. That, that Jesus came all the way to death on the cross to satisfy the holy, righteous, just requirement of God so that we can be forgiven and accepted and brought into the, to the presence of God. But then this meal is, is also where we start to confront that, that reality of religious rebellion against God. That this meal requires self-examination, to examine yourself to see if you are in the Lord. Because if you come to this while persistently holding on to your sin without turning to Christ and, and repentance of, and faith, then it's just like Saul in our text, who was building altars and praying and, and trying to go through religious motions to, to work his way up to God, but it didn't do anything spiritually good to him. That in, if anything, it only hardened his heart more. And that's what would happen to take this meal without repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that it, it would actually harden you rather than softening you to the things of of God. So if you're here and you've never repented and trusted in Christ, we're glad you're here, but we would invite you to stay seated as people come forward. But for the rest, we can remember as we, we come to this table that we don't come as those who are strong, that to one degree or another, we've all been in religious rebellion against God, because even as believers, we struggle with sin, we, we struggle with patterns where we want to return to, to old patterns um, of, of our life before Christ. And so we come here not because we have it all together. We come as those who are weak, who need uh, the, the mercy of Jesus to, to minister to us again that we can be strengthened. And so if you don't have to be a Presbyterian or a member of Hope Church, uh, but to be one who is trusting in Christ, has made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel not bound by the action of another church from taking this, but one that can join with us in professing the faith that we hold together. So let's read Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11. This is on page 9 in your order of worship. And this is our profession of faith, what, what Jesus did to save us. And most scholars believe that this was an, a creed that was used in the early church, even before the time of Paul, that Paul brings into his, his letter. So we're joining with ancient words of God's people here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we can come forward whenever you're ready. You can come down the center aisle. I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you and take the cup. We have gluten-free here as well um, if you need it. And return to your chair and we'll take it together at the end. Uh, And if you do need um, someone to bring you the elements, you can raise your hand and Ernie uh, will be happy to bring those to you. Let's pray. Father, we are so often like the the judgmental older brother in the parable of the prodigal son that that we we want to seem religious, we want to seem good, we want people to think that we are, are faithful in our prayers and in our service. But so often, Lord, we see that in our hearts we are cold towards you, that we are hypocritical, we are rebellious, We are digging our heels in in patterns of sin even when we're confronted. But Lord, we pray that we can be like Jonathan in our text who who takes responsibility, acknowledges where he has fallen short of even his earthly father's standard. Uh, But Lord, we have fallen short of you, of your standard that is a reflection of your holy, righteous good character. We acknowledge that your law is good, that, that it's not a burden, that it, it's a reflection of, of who you are, that it's, it's what we need for human flourishing. But yet, Lord, we, we turn away that we, we want our own path. And so we pray, Lord, that you would rescue us from the jaws, uh, from the vice of religious hypocrisy. We pray for Hope Church that we can be a church of true heart repentance, true heart acknowledgement of sin and and failure where we don't hide our sin, but we can even make it known because we are covered with grace and and forgiveness in Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would be a church that, yes, we, we have religious forms like the celebration of this meal here, preaching of the word, singing together, but Lord, guard us against the the wicked desires of our heart that would turn these things into performance or into our work rather than a testament to your grace and your work for us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Christ's body for you. Take and eat. I invite you to, to stand with us for our final song. It's, it's really appropriate to sing nothing but the